0: Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Ethical Principles in AI podcast. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different because we actually have a guest with us. So today we have Chris Mountain with us. He's the team lead for the Ethical Principles in AI uh, Bias in Facial Recognition Project. And uh, yeah, hi, Chris. Thanks for being here. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So uh, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what kind of work? you guys do in the BFR team yeah for sure so high level the bias
1: and facial recognition project is the first technical project we've ever done at EPI. Um, it was sort of conceptualized with two main goals in mind the first one was to get EPI members up to speed on the fundamentals of machine learning and building neural networks um, and then practice applying it in Python and with the TensorFlow library Um, then project wise the main goal this year was to build two debiasing neural networks for facial recognition. Um, debiasing neural networks are basically neural networks that account for having a biased data set um, and try and be, sort of debias it at time of training the neural network. Um, finally, we sort of want to compare the advantages and disadvantages of each debiaser over various training datasets and see what we can learn about the two debiasers that we built.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool uh how about you though what what got you interested in you know researching facial recognition as a field
1: yeah well i started taking the machine intelligence engineering major in uh, september of 2021 at u of t and i was looking for project-based work to sort of cement my understanding of course concepts Uh, it just so happened that my friends were starting a club at the same time and looking for a team lead so my actual entry into the facial recognition project It was sort of one part circumstance and one part like nepotism. Um, My actual interest in facial recognition developed when I started reading about the subject and realized how pervasive the technology was in our lives. Plus, it fell into the blanket of machine learning topics, which was a technology I'm already interested in, so it wasn't super difficult to become
0: interested in this field specifically. Okay, so then on that note, um, what kind of an effect in our everyday lives might most people see as a result of uh, facial recognition technology um that's a really good
1: question so some more sort of common and relatively harmless applications um that probably a lot of people have been exposed to are one would be the obvious like iphone unlock where you point your camera at your face and it, it recognizes it with a pretty high degree of accuracy and unlocks pretty effectively Um, The other one that's super popular and is sort of underrated in terms of how much it's used is like Facebook and Google Photos tagging, where it sort of learns in an unsupervised manner what the faces of all your friends look like and what your face looks like and is able to tag you. Um, Now, there are some more potentially harmful applications um, that are maybe less popular, but are definitely more subject to ethical discussion. And these are applications in terms of like security and law enforcement, um, where facial recognition is used to combat crime and terrorism. Um, There's social credit programs, and China is a really great example of a country that sort of uses that and uses a lot of facial IDing for that. Um, And another interesting example that I actually came across was, so analyzing facial expressions from hiring video interviews. So basically what uh, one company was doing is they were doing their interviews over sort of Zoom or Skype or something like that, and recording um, the video and they would they'd basically feed in the successful applicants' videos to train their machine learning algorithm. And then they'd analyze new applicants' videos based on the previous successful applicants' videos to see if they matched in terms of how they expressed themselves and emoted. Um, and they were using that as a sort of a hiring feature. But the, I mean, the issue is that if you have intrinsic bias based on who you're hiring already, then obviously you're gonna have a super, super biased data set in terms of who your machine algorithm learns is a potentially good candidate in the future.
0: That's actually really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never thought about that. I've also never actually thought about. Well, I mean, I knew about the, um, I knew about the whole Chinese social credit and using facial recognition in that system, but I've never actually thought, <laughs> thought about uh, how Facebook learns people's faces with their auto tagging feature. But that's really interesting too, and that sort of leads into uh, the next question I have for you, which is what what do you think is maybe an underrecognized or maybe an underpublicized issue. Uh, in facial recognition that you think people, you know, should care more about or should know more about? That's a great question. Um, I think something
1: interesting that people don't think about really at all when it comes to facial recognition, especially data gathering for facial recognition and doing research in the the field, is that there's a lot of collection of data without consent. Um, And so initially, if you look back sort of to the early 2000s, maybe when they're starting to collect data for um, maybe they're building something like a machine learning algorithm, the super, super basic version. What they're doing is they're going in and taking pictures of people and labeling those pictures um, with consent. They're asking people to sort of participate in a study. But because there's so much access to so much data, photos of people really everywhere on the internet, it's really, really easy for companies to train data sets on basically involuntarily collected images of people which opens up a whole bag of worms ethically in terms of, are you allowed to do that? And, you know, if it starts with taking images of people, where does it stop necessarily? Like, when are you going to be able to take people's data without consent? And when should we have strict guidelines about whether or not you're supposed to be able to? But uh, yeah, and so far, like uh, up to the current date, it's been pretty easy for companies to get away with taking data without consent like that and not having people sort of like consensually participate in a study or a research program where they're, they're allowing their face to be used in these data sets, which is potentially pretty harmful and definitely under-recognized.
0: So I wanna switch a little more into um, talking about what your project team actually does, the uh, bias and facial recognition team. So uh, broadly speaking, you know, bias itself, uh, it can be a pretty unclear, pretty poorly defined topic sometimes. Um, In the context of your team's project, how would you define bias?
1: Yeah, so to understand bias in facial recognition context, I think it's useful to first understand how neural networks interpret images in general. Um, Essentially the neural network is trained to recognize features of the image and the features it actually looks for are machine learned based on the input training data. So then it looks at the feature vector, which is basically an array of values that are close to one if the neural network thinks it detects the, the features in the image and close to zero if the neural network does not think that it detects the feature in the image. Um, then it sort of takes a weighted or scored average of all the feature scores that it was looking for to decide whether or not there was a face. So now if we hold all features constant except for one and change the score of that feature, and you can change the output of the facial detection algorithm from yes to no, then the algorithm is biased with respect to that feature. I mean, obviously this is okay if the feature is one that you would want the algorithm to decide on, but as an arbitrary example, If you were to change a feature that correlated with ear size from like big ears to small ears and that made the neural network think that there was no longer a face in the image then the network is biased with respect to ear size
0: okay that's that's really interesting i never thought about it in terms of ear size um so then technically speaking what is it that makes it so that we face the problem of bias in facial recognition? Like, would you say it's more the algorithm itself or is it more dependent on the types of material fed into it? Um,
1: that's a really good question. Uh, so the machine learning algorithm really just gets good at recognizing exactly what you have shown to it while it was learning. So bias in facial recognition is 100% about the data being used to train the model Um, In academic contexts, historically, when they were getting students to volunteer to have their picture taken, or to create databases, or to train faces, I sort of talked about this earlier. Um, Or as another example, in the Celeb A dataset, which is a popular online dataset, they have various celebrity faces um, that are photographed and labeled. And you can see how in sort of all these contexts, just based on the demographics of who these people are gonna be, there would be a lot more white representation than other races, sort of as a general rule of the distribution. Um, it's actually pretty systematic. I mean, like cameras have historically been better calibrated for lighting conditions to take color accurate pictures of white faces than black faces as well. So there's a ton of systemic influence in everything from the demographics of the research groups to the inception of the technology we're using to capture faces that sort of has bias built into it. Um, as a counterexample, though, interestingly enough, a facial recognition network trained on an American police database was found to be significantly more effective at recognizing black faces than white faces. Just because of the incarceration demographics in the States. So you see how this is really a core issue of the training data that we're feeding to the technology?
0: Wow. Okay. The the, the camera thing is really cool. I never I never, you know, thought of it that all the camera technology that we've historically made will be better calibrated for white faces. But also, the the incarceration example is just an unfortunate one. It's, it's really yeah.
1: damning, yeah. hey. Yeah, if you actually look up um, old pictures of with people of mixed races in them, you'll totally see that like the, the calibration of the coloring in the camera is just significantly better to capture like the subtleties in color of Caucasian faces, which is and, yeah. and that's not like a feature of the technology. That's a feature of how they design the technology.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then in that case, um, what are what are some of the most common biases? that facial recognition technology, you know, can be prone to? Yeah, so I mean, you can really bias a facial detection or
1: recognition neural network in any direction just by adjusting the data that it receives and leaving out certain features in the data. Um, the classic examples that I talked about are demographic-based, like race or age or gender. And that's really just a symptom of how groups tend to be divided. So when they're collecting data from sort of a certain subsection of society, no matter where you are, you're going to get a certain demographic that's skewed in terms
0: of those sort of really typical variables. So that's not necessarily a result of the actual technology or maybe the design of the technology, but that's really a symptom of the sort of societal conditions that the technology is working in. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then in terms of the, the project and the technology that the Bias in Facial Recognition project team is working on. Um, what are some of the differences between the sorts of facial recognition technology that we would see, you know, in industry in the real world, and the sorts of technology that you're working on with your project team?
1: Yeah, well, what we're really working on are debiasing algorithms to implement while training neural networks. Um, this is a great question, though, because a lot of facial detection neural networks in practice today don't really take advantage of debiasing algorithms, and that's just because it's a relatively new technology. So both the algorithms that we're working to implement right now, um, one's called the Amini algorithm and the other is called the DebFace algorithm, they both had their respective papers published really recently in 2019. Um, I'm sure that they are becoming used in industry, like I'm sure they're being adopted, if they haven't already. But implementation does take time, especially across, you know, a bunch of industry sectors that use facial recognition. Um, otherwise, without a debiasing algorithm, the only good way to mitigate bias in your data is really to go through tens of thousands of data samples and manually categorize them by race, or age, or gender, and then make sure to train them on an even distribution of your labeled images. So that obviously takes forever and is super expensive,
0: which is why it typically hasn't been done in the past in industry. So without like without automated uh, debiasing algorithms or without automated debiasing technology, it's really sort of prohibitive to manually do this sort of work.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's sort of impractical. And I don't think there was enough incentive previously um, to sort of spend all the time and all the money to make that happen.
0: So uh, you mentioned the Amini and Face algorithms. Um, And I guess that these are the sorts of methods or the techniques that you're using uh, to try and de-bias. But how did, you, how did you end up choosing you know, to work on these two algorithms? And uh, what do you think are some of the advantages and disadvantages you know, to each of them? Well, I can
1: speak to the Amini algorithm a little bit better than I can speak to the DevFace algorithm. Um, as we've Im- basically completed our Amini code, but we're still really in the trenches with our DevFace research and implementation. Uh-huh. Um, the Amini algorithm basically, in an unsupervised manner, learns a representation of the underlying latent space of feature vectors in the dataset using a system called a variational autoencoder. So at a high level, it learns which individual features bias the output. Then as images are fed into the neural network, it dynamically increases the probability of an image being used for training based on whether or not it has a common feature in the latent space. So our main application is debiasing for race. Uh, the variational autoencoder is dynamically noticing in an unsupervised way that skin color and features related to race are affecting the output of the neural network. Um, if the dataset has an underrepresentation of faces with black features, it will disproportionately raise the probability that images with these features are sampled and used for training. Then, even with a biased dataset, you end up getting a neural network that is trained on an unbiased representation of the dataset, or an unbiased set of samples. Um, the Debface algorithm is similar in that it tries to turn your bias data set into a data set with even distributions, but it uses a different system called an adversarial network that is specifically designed to get out disentangled feature representations of age, gender, and race, and then sort based on those. In um, that way, the Debface is less general than the Amini algorithm, um, and it's explicitly designed for facial detection and recognition. In terms of advantages and disadvantages, That's actually what we're working on. So we want to look at how these algorithms perform head-to-head over various training data sets and with different features.
0: But we haven't finished our implementation, so I can't really speak much more (laughs) to that. So some people would uh, question the process of de-biasing itself, uh, sort of as a process that, you know, can shift the responsibilities associated with social issues into into the realm of design, Um, you know, ultimately allowing people to cover up the real-world biases, uh, instead of reducing them or fixing them, um, how do you think uh, people working in AI can approach biases uh, as the you know the sort of complex social issues that they are, while also working towards the technological solutions that we we want to see and that we need? Oh man, uh, yeah, that's a
1: great question. I mean, why should we be debiasing the dataset? of university students' faces instead of asking why marginalized communities are underrepresented at the university or why people of color are overrepresented in a police database. But at the same time, it's tough because in the case of police ID'ing suspects or of people hiring for a position at a company, we have this feedback loop where a biased ML algorithm has the potential to worsen the problem, which is the same problem that gave us the biased algorithm in the first place. From an engineering perspective, what we can do is. Be aware that our designs have an immediate and tangible social impact, and make it an imperative to eliminate bias in these designs, even when the bias originates externally. Uh, I think it's really easy for designers of technology to, uh, to sort of say, you know, look, the technology is fair, it's your impl- implementation that's giving you problems, and that's really not good enough. Um, unfortunately, it is really up to policymakers for the institutions that use this technology to not pretend that it's a black box. And the only actual solution I see to this specific issue is to have more people with technolo- technological backgrounds deciding policy and have more policymakers with a better understanding of the technology that they are creating policies for. Um, I am maybe optimistic, but I definitely see the world moving that way over the next 5, 10, 20 years.
0: Okay. So this next question is going to be my last one for you. And uh, it might actually be the hardest one to answer. Um, But what do you think has been the most important or maybe the most interesting thing that you've learned while you've been working on this project? You know
1: what, on that optimistic note, um, the most interesting thing, and I think I speak for the whole BFR team when I say this, by the way, shout out to the BFR team for working so hard all year (laughs) on this project. (laughs) They've been really fantastic, but um, the most interesting thing is probably the accessibility of working with machine learning today. There's countless academic resources on how to set up and use different libraries like TensorFlow, and where hardware might have been historically a limiting factor, we now have tools like Google Colab, which will let you train neural networks on practically any computer in the world by taking advantage of Google GPUs, right? Um, There really has never been a better time to get into AI and machine learning. I mean, like job wise and interest wise and resource wise. And although it sounds pretty intimidating, it's actually super approachable. Um, I think my whole team has enjoyed having access to so many online resources. And I think anyone interested in this field listening to the podcast right now has the exact same opportunity to get on the ground running with the technology. So, yeah, I'd say the most interesting thing has been just how accessible it all is. And, um, you know, despite the sort of intimidation factor of, oh, uh, we're doing machine learning, how it's really it's really doable for somebody at home right now to sort of just hop on and get started.
0: Yeah, I know uh, plenty of Medium articles are great tutorials. And uh, despite all the buzzwords that get thrown around, it is very approachable, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Chris, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time to answer these questions. You had some really great answers. And uh, yeah, it was great having you.
1: Gary, thanks for having me. You had some really, really good questions.
0: I'd like to thank you guys at home for listening in today. The semester is coming to a close and the podcast team is going to be heading into our final exams. So this does mark our last episode until the next academic year. I'd like to give a very big shout out to the podcast team for all of the hard work and research that they've put into all of our podcast episodes. And I'd also like to extend a welcome to you guys as the listeners to check back in next fall for perhaps some new episodes and maybe some new voices about interesting ethical topics in AI. As usual, you can listen to all of the episodes of our podcast on our club website, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us.